When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Knife Talk is sponsored by Tormac. For your chance to win a T4 sharpening system, visit knifetalk.net to enter the draw. The winner will be chosen on our 10th show and will receive a Tormac T4 and a set of jigs to make your knives razor sharp. So welcome to the very first episode of Knife Talk. Today I'll be speaking with Walter Sorrells about his life as a professional bladesmith, including his wildly successful YouTube channel, and his, and his way of making these amazing Japanese swords. So, so, hey, Walter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Good to be here. Great stuff. So wh- whereabouts in the U.S. are you based? Uh, I'm outside of Atlanta, down in the southeast. Right, okay. So you've got the sun at the moment, then? Well, a little bit. <laughs> so so let, let me try and set the scene a little bit here. So do you have a, a separate workshop you work from, or do you have a shop at home? What's your kind of setup there? Yeah, basically, I work out of a, a garage type uh, setup, but I, I should be moving to a kind of more extensive place uh, probably in the next, you know, within the next few months. Yeah, never enough room for the tools, eh? Not even close. <laughs> so, so many people may know you as a, as a great bladesmith, but you're also a very respected novelist. Um, so. From a successful novelist to a highly respected bladesmith, that's not really a normal career path. How how did that happen? Well, yeah, it's uh, definitely. But, you know, starting out as a novelist to begin with is not really your normal career path. So yeah. <laughs> once you pile another weird career on top of it, it's just more of the same. Uh, but kind of the way that it started was... Um, Typically, uh, as a writer, I found that, you know, I'd get started in the morning and crank away for a while. And at a certain point, my brain was just kind of squeezed dry. And that when I when I first got started, I sort of felt like, oh, I should work an eight hour day and be just like some guy working down at the factory. But I just realized after a couple of years of working hard in the morning and then kind of flagellating myself all afternoon for not getting much accomplished. I just realized like the rhythm of being a novelist is not the same as the rhythm of screwing car doors on at the factory or something. And so, you know, basically I would work all morning and when my brain just stopped functioning, I would quit and try and do something else. And so uh, somewhere along the, the line, I had an idea for a novel that was going to involve a guy who was a, um, a Japanese swordsmith. And so I thought, well, you know, I should do a little research, kind of try and get something tactile, something tangible that um, I could sort of feel in my hands yes. how that character would think. 
And so uh, I started doing that and I just, I got the bug and uh, one thing led to another. And here I am almost 20 years later uh, doing this as a full-time thing. Right. It's, it's a similar, similar story with myself. So I ran a publishing company for some time. And um, that whole thing of sitting in front of a screen for eight, nine hours a day and just just needing to make something with my hands, you know. And funnily enough, it was your videos that I came across making knives that got me into making knives. And it's and it's sort of blossomed from there. So, yeah, it's 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 a it's a very strange beginning into the industry. But um, you certainly seem to be doing very well. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. So, so from from that, from those sort of humble beginnings, when did that become a job? When did that become your main sort of focus? Well, here's here's sort of the progress, and it, you know, there's not really a hard and fast line, but essentially, what happened was ten, almost fifteen years ago now, I guess, um, I got to a point where I realized, well, if you want to do Damascus steel, if you want to do folded stuff, you know, I'm, my main focus was Japanese swords, and so I wanted to to be able to pursue something uh, in that kind of traditional. Yeah. Um, realm, which involved all this folding. And, uh, you know, of course, back in the good old days, you'd have two or three uh, big, healthy young guys who would swing 20 kilo hammers. But uh, that's that's not practical anymore. So you need a press or a power hammer or something. I just realized, like, OK, you know, instead of taking that money out of the couch cushions or out of our uh, family, you know, food budget, yeah, I would yeah. sell some swords and that would pay for the, um, for the, the tool, you know? And, uh, so I put up a little website and I was actually just kind of shocked at the response that I got. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I what happened was I, I quickly got orders that put me in a backlog kind of situation for just years and years. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, it, it just, it just kind of naturally evolved from, uh, Thing that I did in the afternoons after I finished writing into in, into something that was more of a, a full time business and and uh, honestly the the writing business kind of changed as I went along and I was just having a lot less fun with it and um, you know the income goes up and down and there just there were a lot of things that over time were making me kind of unhappy about writing. Yes. And I was enjoying the I was enjoying the uh, sword making more. And so I just kind of transitioned slowly into this being my full time occupation. Fantastic. And does it feel like a job? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you better believe if you're standing in front of a forge uh, in Georgia with no air conditioning um, in <laughs> July, you know, it's 110, 120 degrees standing there in front of a forge. And if you think that's not a job, you haven't tried it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's great. You, you, you know, you're in the business and you've, you've got money coming in. You've got you've got customers and so on. But what was your motivation behind the, the YouTube channel, which has been wildly successful for you? Well, again, you know, I, I, I've planned absolutely nothing in this business. I, I had all kinds of plans when I was a writer, but this sword making thing has totally been by a flying by the seat of the pants uh, approach. So here's, here's exactly what happened. I used to get emails constantly from people who would say, how do you make your hamones? Because that seemed like something that very early on I, I sort of was doing in a different way from other people. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got endless emails from people 
wanting me to explain how I did them. And, you know, I, I would answer them at great length for a while. And finally, I realized, like, you know, first off, you can't tell people this in an email. It's just too complicated. Yeah. And and second, you know, it's just completely unreasonable to try and write, you know, a novel length email to every single joker who wants to find out how I make hamones. So I thought, well, I'll just make a little video. I'll charge like five dollars for it and it'll just shut these guys up and I won't have to answer all this email. So uh, being the sort of obsessive guy that I am, I started doing this video and it ended up becoming much more complicated and much more. Uh, I just tried hard to harder to do a good job of it than I had origi originally intended. So once I got done with it, I realized like this is an hour long video. It's very detailed and blah, blah, blah. I might as well charge more of a reasonable price that reflects, you know, yeah, yeah. What, what the work that I put into it. So I did that and there was a good response to that. And then I did several other um, videos uh, of, of a similar sort with other aspects of Japanese sword making. So next thing you know is I sort of have this little catalog of, of sword videos. And I guess this period was about 10 years ago when YouTube was first coming along. And I thought, oh, here's this YouTube thing that they put videos on. I'll just upload a few little clips here and try and attract attention to my uh, videos so I can sell them off my website. And I, I just quickly realized, like, this is attracting something different. It's a it's just a different thing. And people are responding to it a little bit differently. And, you know, this YouTube thing, it's actually, it's, it's something different. It's its own little thing. And I just started doing more videos. Again, it was mainly as a self-promotion kind of thing. And it just, it got more and more, um, you know, momentum. And so I, 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 it just kind of slowly grew into this thing. And yeah. here it is today. Yeah, well, I've, I've got to say that the production values are fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of crap and sort of misinformation out there on YouTube, but but yours are always my go-to resource. You know, if I want to if I want to learn to make mosaic pins, there's a there's a Walter video. If I want to learn to you know the best way to sharpen a blade, it's a Walter video. It, it's 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 the go-to place for me. You know. Well, I'll tell you, there were there were sort of two two sides to that. You know, the first was especially when when we first got started on YouTube. Um, there was a lot of just unbelievably garbage production stuff, you know, <laughs> Lots and, of and I, I would, I would try and learn something off a of video and I'd be like, this is a bunch of shit. You know, this guy has spent no time on this. He doesn't understand anything about lighting, about editing. And I would get mad, you know, I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? And that sort of drove me to try and be, um, you know, to, to do as good a job as I could to transmit the information that I had. And, the, you know, the other flip side of that is just what, what's the nature of the information that you're transmitting. And, you know, I just tried to, like, if I did something, you know, some of the things that I do videos about are things that I really understand really well and I have plenty to say on. But sometimes I'll do things about stuff because I want to learn more about them and I don't really know squat about it, you know. So I'll go out, I'll do a little research. And, you know, so I try to be upfront about the things that I know more about than things that I know less about. But, you know, in whatever case, I'm always trying to be to not just 
talk shit. You know, I'm trying yes. to say something that that I, you know, I've actually done a little research and and has some grounding in you know the way that people, you know, in in fact or whatever. Of course, sometimes I screw up and sometimes I put stuff out there that. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I, I try to do that as little as I can. Yes, yeah, but I think you just made a point, really, of when you're trying to learn something, quite often it's good to sort of put something out there, whether it's a tutorial or it's an essay piece or whatever. Yeah, you're certainly going to learn a lot by just by going through that process as well. So, yeah, I, I certainly see where you're coming from there. Well, I'll tell you, you know, this is something that I definitely learned from watching some other people. Um you know, I'm one of those people that I always want to be the guy in the room who knows the most stuff. And that's not necessarily a psychologically attractive thing. You know, I mean, sometimes sometimes you learn better by being humble enough to recognize that you just don't know anything. Yeah. yeah. And and, you know, I, I saw some videos like I, I watched John Saunders videos. I don't know if you're if you've watched them, if, yes, you, if you're yes. interested in machining. Yeah. Right. And he's always really like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to kind of figure this out. If you guys have some ideas, and and I really, I kind of had this aha moment with him, and you know, some other guys like that, like, oh, I don't have to come out off as the total expert every damn time I do a video. Sometimes I can just say, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing. Do you guys who know something more than I do, can you help me out here? And 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 you know, there's always somebody who knows more than you do about any subject you're going to talk about. Yes, yes, you can sort of start the conversation that way, yeah, yeah. So what's the fascination with, with Japanese swords? Where, where does that stem from? Um, you know, I, like most people who get involved with knives, you know, I think I was that kid who was always, you know, buying a knife and throwing it into a tree in the backyard and, and was interested in knights and armor and samurai and all that kind of stuff. Um but as an adult, I got involved in, in Japanese martial arts um, kind of like right after I got out of college. Right. And uh, so, you know, that led me to um, training in Japanese swords and various other things. And, you know, so it was just it was always one of those things that was kind of sitting there in front of me like, oh, this is something I'm really interested in. And so once, you know, once once I sort of had this revelation that like, oh, I could actually start to make stuff in my garage and aim for this distant thing over here. Um, of course, you know, the first thing I did when I, when I um, first started trying to make knives was I tried to make a katana right out of the gate, <laughs> not knowing anything. And, yeah. you know, it was just, a, it was a complete disaster. It was just awful. And and not only was it bad, it was just, it, it, it would just, it just hits you in the face like, Walter, you don't know Jack. You don't have any clue what you're doing. And clearly this big, complicated um, thing is just this. This is not the place to start. So I backed up and I went way, way back and started making more kind of Western type knives and, you know, just trying to learn about heat treating and really, really basic stuff. And so I made a whole lot of blades that were just really simple garbagey kind of things but each one I was trying to learn something and and so it took me it took me a, several years before I sort of circled back around and said okay I can hit this Japanese thing again and maybe this time it's not going to be such a complete disaster yes yeah <laughs> so you've got this line of tactical knives now which are which are quite a departure obviously from the traditional sword so so how did that come about well um you know it's it's somewhat of a piece with the Japanese things in the sense that it kind of 
derives out of my martial arts interests. Um, but I also got involved in competitive uh, pistol shooting, um, tactical, you know, pistol type shooting. Yes, yeah. Uh, several years back, and you know, a lot of the guys that I, I shoot with have an interest in carrying some kind of uh, additional knife, and of course, you know, nobody's carrying a, a sword around. So I sort of started backing into that as just a, a little auxiliary thing that I did sort of for fun. But what what kind of came along with this was. As I started to wind down as a writer and kind of spin up as a professional um, bladesmith and, and, you know, and looking at it as like, okay, this is an occupation as opposed to sort of a high paid hobby. Once, yes. once I sort of started to make that revelation, I, I had to just come to the realization also that I just couldn't make grown up money making swords. Um, you know, I probably, in all seriousness, I probably have to charge about $20,000 per katana to yeah. make just an honest middle-class living because they're just incredibly complex and difficult to make. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, I never felt like what I was doing, you know, I wouldn't have paid $20,000 for what I was doing. And I, I, I just felt a little weird trying to get other people to pay that much. And, and I don't really think there's much of, there are just not that many people out there who are willing to pay $20,000 for a modern sword too. So once, once I kind of came to that place, I was just like, you know what, let's try and move this in the direction of something that's more production oriented. So, you know, we talked earlier about how I was going to be moving to a new, a new place. That's really driven by the tactics armory thing, my, my new line. I mean, the idea is that I'm going to be hiring people and turning it into a to a production type business, not just, you know, here's Walter sitting around handcrafting all these little things. Gotcha. I mean, a lot of your most recent videos have involved CNC machinery, haven't they? So I was just right. that sort of helping that transition, I suppose, to the to a production environment, I see. Yes. Right. And and you know, it's it's a really for me, it's a really interesting uh, challenge, you know, uh, there, there's a certain kind of person who looks at handmade knives and just says, oh, well, handmade is somehow intrinsically better than machine made or, you know, they're sort of moralistic about it. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as, look, how can we make a good product at a given price point? Um, you know, what are the kind of challenges that lie in front of you as a knife maker, as a businessman, just as a human being? Here's this, here's this thing. How do I go about conquering that? And once you frame it that way, then there's going to be a different set of tools involved than if I'm trying to handcraft a Japanese sword that's made from folded steel and, you know, all that yes, sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. So with the tactical range, are you finding a bit more of a, I would imagine that the, the sword, so it may be a bit more form focused over function maybe, and maybe a tactical range is a bit more sort of function focused over form. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, no, actually, I, I would say that my starting point from day one has always, always, always been uh, function first. Right. Now, of course, there is a Japanese aesthetic tradition and all that sort of thing. But, I mean, all of the aesthetics of Japanese swords actually grew out of functional and process-related um, 
things. And, you know, a, a lot of collectors, I think, tend to look at them as just um, art pieces, but they're not. They're weapons. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and so that, that, that was kind of always my starting point, especially because I started as a as a martial artist and, you know, I handled swords before I really was making them. And so, you know, I always felt like, look, if this thing breaks, if it doesn't cut, you know, all that sort of thing, then it's just due over time. It's just, you know, this is something to just throw on the floor and start over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the sheer utility of a blade really, you know, to me, the beauty comes after. And exactly. And, 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 you know, it's that form, the the elegance of a of a I don't want to say a correct form, but a, a form that is functionally pure, almost invariably has a, a aesthetic qualities yes, yeah. that are that are quite dramatic and beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and 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 going back to this sort of production environment. I mean, I started making knives, you know, with files. Again, copying your videos, you're using hand files and so on. Um, so they're very much sort of handmade knives and very much in that right. sort of maker's movement. That's that's happening at the moment, which right. more and more people are getting into. But then, you know, going from you just using Japanese sharpening stones to using things like a Tomac, the sharpening wheel, you know, so I can get this consistent edge each time. And, yeah, I'm also battling with that. When does it stop becoming handmade, and when does it become a production knife? You know, um, and I, uh, yeah, I think that's that's something that I think every maker really has to sort of draw that line where you know where they fit within the scope of of, of a maker. I think absolutely. You know, there there are two sides to it. The first is inside yourself. What kind of challenge are you trying to to master or face? And, and what's interesting to you. And if what's interesting to you is making something with nothing but files and charcoal that you made in your backyard out of trees that you cut down with an ax and stuff, you know, I, I mean, seriously, there are guys who, who are like that. And, and yeah. if that's what your challenge is, then that's, th then you should do that as rigorous, rigorously and forcefully as you can. And, if it's not, then, you know, follow whatever logic makes sense to you. But the other point I would make on that score is just be honest with your customers about what you're doing. And, and as long as, you know, as long as you don't misrepresent what you're doing, you know, I would never tell somebody that a machine, that a, that a blade that I've made, um, which involves the use of a CNC machine, um, was somehow, you know, made differently. That's just, that's part yes, of what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. So, tell us about your experience with with Forged in Fire. Um, I mean, that doesn't air here in Europe, but I have managed to view your episode online, and it seems like a seriously high-pressure environment, that. It, it is, it is. And, you know, it was a fun experience. Uh, you know, I, I was a little hesitant to do it in the first place. Um, and did, did they reach out to you, or was it, was it something that you approached them with, or...? Yeah, yeah, they they reached out to me. They they had actually contacted me in the first season, and um, I can't remember exactly what happened. If it was a scheduling conflict or whatever, but I, I yes. couldn't do it that first season. They ended up calling me back on the third season, I guess it was, and um, you know that time it it, it all worked out. Um, but it's uh, you know it's it's a there of course it's a it's a 
you know, it's it's a videotaped entertainment show. And yes, so, yes. Uh, you know, anything that involves videotape, um, actually nothing involves videotape, but anything that involves videos, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is incredibly complicated to make. You have to shoot things over and over and you have to light things a certain way and you have to have the right number of cameras and the angles and all this stuff. And so sort of surrounding the contest itself, there are all these retakes and takes of you standing in front of the anvil and staring at the judges and the judges <laughs> sitting there awkwardly and staring back at you. And, um, and they shoot this stuff endlessly and the little interviews with you and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah, um, and that, that is more a lot of hurry up and wait boredom kind of stuff, but the actual, um, the actual contest itself is extremely for real. Really? Once that, oh yeah. So when they start the, the clock, that's, that's the clock. Is that, is that right? Damn skippy. And it doesn't go wow, off that's... until the thing's over. Unless there's a medical emergency, they do not stop that clock. Wowzers. Right. So what that means, and this, here's another little fascinating tidbit. Um, for audio reasons, they turn off the air conditioning in the, um, in the studio. So you got four forges going um, at, you know, 2,500 degrees or thereabouts. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the space is a little smaller than it looks on TV. I mean, it's still a pretty sizable space, space but, you know, four forges will fill that air up with hot air really quickly. So it's probably 110 degrees on the set. And when you're actually standing close to a forge, it might be even closer to 120. Um, so you're working in an extremely high pressure situation as fast, as flat out as humanly possible, um, in this incredibly high temperature. Um, and you know, I had actually kind of practiced a little bit. I said, you know, let's just see what it's like to, you know, what can I accomplish in three hours in my forge? Mm -hmm. And so I, I did a couple of little projects where I basically just turned a clock on and worked for three hours and turned it off. Uh, and this was in summertime in Georgia and the, you know, the three hour stints that I did at home were just nothing like as brutal as <laughs> the three hours on that set up there in Brooklyn. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, but you know, the other side of it's just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, a lot of pressure, you know, cause there, I mean, they're literally like 40 people on set, um, camera guys, they're probably, you know, eight, 12 camera guys, the judges are sitting there watching you the whole time. Um, you know, all the producers and all those guys are watching you. And so you really feel under the microscope and, and you don't want to screw it up. And it's yes, just, yes. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty fascinating experience. <laughs> well, from the few episodes that I've seen over the last few days, there's always somebody about to pass out with the heat. So I, I, I can totally see how hot it would be there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, I got done and, you know, I, I, about two and a half hours into it. And, you know, for those who have not seen the show, um, I, I kind of got hosed. I don't want to say that, but I did. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, in all seriousness, I got a, ch a challenge that was far more difficult than the other three guys yes, uh, that were was. there. Certainly um, was, yeah. But I was also, you know, the most experienced guy there. And I just felt like, well, you know, I, I, I can't knuckle under here. I've got to just go pedal to the metal the whole way. And 
uh, and, you know, and try and take this thing. And I got about two and a half hours in and I'd been having a whole bunch of trouble getting this, uh, this, uh, billet out of this canister. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I had to do basically, I had to forge and heat treat and grind the knife in an hour, essentially. Um, and so about at the two and a half hour mark, uh, I just realized like, and, and I just knew I had a ton of stuff still to do and I knew it was doable, but I just knew that there was, I couldn't relent for one second. And I, I realized that heat was getting to me and I was like, man, this is, I'm, I'm starting to feel this, but I just said, I'm just not going to relent. I'm absolutely keeping the pedal to the firewall until the last second. And that's what I did. And after it was over, I mean, I was so wrung out. The other three guys, actually, you know, some of them looked a little more tired during the uh, the filming. But after it was over, I was I was by far the most worn out guy of the of the four. I was just I mean, I was nearly catatonic and <laughs> it took me quite a little while to recover from that. Imagine if you, imagine if you were wearing the denim shirt at the same time, how hot you would have been then. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. And, you know I mean, I've thought about, you know, some of these guys that are a little more heavy set or whatever, you know, um, or, you know, whatever, just like some or people from really cold climates or whatever. One of the guys that we were shooting with, you know, he lives in Alaska and, um, you know, I was at least coming from Georgia, you know, where I was used to the heat. But I mean, if, if you had anything that was going to make heat tough on you, wow. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm surprised some people haven't just collapsed in there <laughs> well it, it makes for entertaining show anyway but yeah as as you say it, it's an entertainment show you know it it's it is what it is yeah right right yeah so i'm not going to keep you too long but i'm going to wrap up with a final question which is you're, you're a huge inspiration to me the way you share your knowledge and uh, you know the popularity of your channel and just the beauty of what you make but but who inspires you hmm that's a really interesting question um, well, you know, first off, of course, are the, you know, innumerable Japanese swordsmiths who established that tradition a thousand years ago or whatever. Um, you know, those guys were doing just extraordinary stuff with the simplest, simplest tools. You know, yes. they didn't have power hammers or belt grinders or any of that stuff and and you know just very very difficult conditions and they made these extraordinary uh things that from an engineering and an artistic standpoint i mean they're beautiful they they do what they're supposed to do i mean they're just amazing so i, I would say that that first but maybe on a sort of more human level um you know both of my parents were artists of one sort or another. Um, my dad was a writer and, and my mom um, was a sculptor and painter when I was a kid. Um, she later went on to do some other things. But, you know, I sort of grew up in this um, creative world. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, I, and I've just always felt like um, creativity is something that doesn't, there's no, there's no top to the mountain. You're always as soon as you do something you say, Oh, that's really pretty cool. Then the next step is to find all the flaws in it and then try and do better on the next thing that you make. And, and that way you always got a challenge. And, and, and so, you know, that it's not that the inspiration is 
from inside, but the, but the challenge comes from inside. And so I'm always kind of looking at something that I've done and being unsatisfied with it and trying to move on to the next thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's maybe a good time to call this a day, but can you tell our, our listeners where they, where they can purchase your swords, your knives, and where's best to find you online? Sure. The tactical things that I do, uh, Tactics Armory, um, are found on tacticsarmory.com. Pretty easy to find. And then you can find my YouTube stuff by just searching for Walter Sorrells, of course, on YouTube. And then finally, uh, my Japanese swords are on waltersorrellsblades.com. Fantastic stuff. Okay, that's a wrap. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.